Hello, welcome to my podcast, Post-Imperial China. This is episode 15, and the last one, Collapse. My last episode, we learned about the devastation the war had caused in the condition of the Nanjing government and her military forces. Of course, the Nanjing government had survived. Her earlier failures in post-war condition, however, probably doomed it. And at a critical juncture, the government needed to rise up to meet her greatest threat. We also learned the festering sore between the Kuomintang and the CCP was worsening. The Americans made efforts to reconcile a peace between both sides. I discussed the efforts by each side to form a coalition government of both the Kuomintang and the CCP, all to no avail. I also discussed China's loss of international stature because of the looming fight between the Kuomintang and the CCP. We concluded that no one wanted any part of the enfolding catastrophe. In this episode, this will be the last episode of this season, Before I conclude, I will, in this episode, get into the resumption of the Chinese Civil War. This was the war for control of China. Most of us know how it ended, and I will discuss it. I also want to spend some time on my final thoughts about the post-imperial era and its effect on China. I think this is all fascinating and interesting. In late 1946, Chiang Kai-shek confided to General George Marshall that he believed force was the only way to resolve the issues with the communists. General Marshall tried to warn Chiang Kai-shek, that he and his government were vulnerable to a communist takeover. Marshall cited the poor policies and actions of the Nanjing government and the dismal state of conditions. Those, in his opinion, allowed the CCP to undermine his regime. Marshall also noted and advised Chiang Kai-shek that the Nationalists' recent military victories over the communist only caused the communists to retreat. They were not surrendering. By late 1946, General Marshall held the opinion the communists were too strong militarily and politically. The CCP would pose a never-ending and insurmountable challenge to the nationalists. 
allegedly, Chiang Kai-shek was perturbed and quipped he could dispose of the communists in eight to ten months. By July 1946, Chiang Kai-shek had devised a strategy to recapture towns and cities, gain control of communications, and from there fan out in all directions, gaining more control as they pressed. And so began, or recommenced, more or less, the Chinese Civil War that had tore away at the nation before Japan became the main focus. From July of 1946 to July of 1947, the Nationalists had made good progress capturing towns and cities, especially in Manchuria. The Guomindang Two main fighting forces were in Manchuria and East China around the Shandong and Jiangsu provinces. About this same time, the Red Army was changed to the People's Liberation Army, or PLA. In the first year of the recommenced civil war, the PLA were largely on defense. Something notable, however, also occurred at that time. Previously, the communist forces chose guerrilla-style tactics over mass formations. That had reversed, likely because they believed they had the numbers and the edge. Even though the nationalist forces were better trained and armed, the Nationalists tried their encircling tactic that they had wor- that had worked for them in 1935-1936 in the early phases of the Civil War. It did not work the second time. The PLA merely dodged and retreated. By May of 1947, the Nationalists' offense was fizzling out. They found themselves stretched thin from covering the vast territories they had recently taken. Also, the communists, by that time, quit retreating and began to counterattack. Soon, the PLA was attacking the nationalist forces with larger armies, larger than what the CCP used against the Japanese. The PLA had become good at recruiting soldiers and conducted large efforts to do so. Conversely, the Nationalists had difficulty recruiting for a host of reasons. Soon the Communists were on the offensive, notably in Manchuria. You must understand that while the Nationalists generally had better training and equipment in Manchuria, their leadership was not up to par. The PLA seemed to excel in strategy and execution and morale. Another problem for the nationalists, and less obvious but important, was, especially in Manchuria, the residents there believed they had a better government when the Japanese had control. Many in the areas previously governed by the Japanese They were not excited about or anxious to follow the Nanjing government. By the summer of 1947, after the first year of the Civil War, the Guomindang had suffered enormous casualties. 
perhaps as much as 750,000. The communist casualties were also enormous, but perhaps by one-half the amount of the nationalists. As I spoke about only a short time ago, about that same time, the communist forces began a counteroffensive everywhere. By the end of the second year of fighting, the summer of 1948, the power balance had decisively and irreversibly shifted away from the nationalists and to the communists. In Manchuria alone, the PLA had as many as 750,000 troops plus another 300,000 auxiliary, 300, auxiliary forces in reserve. For the nationalists, probably no more than 500,000, without much hope of replacements. Nationwide, the nationalist troop strength had been reduced by at least one-third from what it was in 1945. At the most, the Nanjing government had maybe, in combat-ready troops, about one million. By early 1948, Mao Zedong was publicly proclaiming that the CCP would establish a new government in China by the next year. He confidently predicted the complete defeat of the Kuomintang within three years. The PLA displayed better tactics, maneuverability, and battle-fighting skills. The PLA had learned from the tough battles they had with the Japanese. The nationalists, not so much. After the fall of the capital of the Shandong province, in the fall of 1948, Chiang Kai-shek vowed he would overall his military plan. That effort, however, proved too late. By the end of the 1948-1949 winter, it was all anticlimactic, foregone conclusion. The nationalist forces were nearly destroyed after that winter. In January 1949, the CCP offered terms of peace a brutal eight-point proposal that would have to be accepted by April of 1949. Some of the points were Chiang Kai-shek would be punished as a war criminal. The remaining nationalist forces were to be integrated into the PLA and the abolition of the Nanjing government. Not surprisingly, Chiang Kai-shek declined the proposals and and resigned his presidency. The vice president succeeded him. The People's Liberation Army began their final campaign once spring 1949 arrived. They were all well-rested and replenished. The PLA met little resistance and by the end of April 1949 had seized Nanjing and Shanghai. Before Nanjing was seized, the Nanjing government fled first to Canton and by July it was in Taiwan. They took with them their navy, air force, and their remaining army. 
In addition, they took about $300 million worth of gold, silver, and reserves. At Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek hoped to wait it out, rebuild his forces, and receive help from the Americans. He was hoping or expecting that that help would come because of the United States and USSR's new Cold War rift. Under American protection, Chiang Kai-shek thought, he could make his comeback. Meanwhile, Mao Zedong officially proclaimed the beginning of the People's Republic of China on October 1st, 1949. At that point, the United States foreign policy for China was wrecked. Her ally, the Guomindang, had been chased out of China. The Guomindang made its move to Taiwan officially on December 9, 1949. There was no basis for the United States to have a relationship with the People's Republic of China. But the U.S. continued their diplomatic support of the Guomindang. Two final things I will state before finishing this history of post-imperial China. First, the United States was no way eager to get involved in the Guomindang's fight with the People's Republic of China. Exhaustion from the recent war, I am sure, was a big factor. Also, Because of the Cold War between the United States and Communist Russia, the United States could not be expected to provide any support or recognition to Communist China. I cannot end this 15-episode narrative without a final comment or two It can be argued that the post-imperial era of China offers evidence that the Chinese people do not want democratically elected leaders. While that may be true, one must be careful to avoid concluding that definitively. As we learned, there were many different forces at work during the era. Those all have to be considered. Finally, the one overriding conclusion or summation of the era was that it can be viewed as a continuation of the same problems and issues China had recently faced during its last dynasty. Those same issues, foreign intervention, lack of national unity, and overall poor or lagging economic conditions, came to be or were the same issues that plagued the Manchus. China does it China's way, for sure and always. Their China-centric view of the world and themselves has never changed. The Chinese viewpoint is perfectly captured and expressed in their language. 
The Mandarin word for China is Zhonghua. It contains two written characters. Zhong, meaning center or middle, and Guo, meaning country. China is the middle or center country. The rest of the world is on the periphery. The word Zhonghua is a perfect representation of the Chinese mindset. Understanding that goes a long way in explaining why China is unique and its history varied. I hope you have all enjoyed my presentation. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.